Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 14. We come this evening to our final study in this series, this relatively brief series on 2 Peter, a very powerful book. We come to the final words of Peter, verse 14, starting at verse 14 and reading through the end at verse 18. Hear the word of God. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. In the course of this sermon series, we've seen a number of themes of Peter that he's brought out, the calling to grow in Christ, the dangers of false teachers that the church at that day was experiencing, and also a major emphasis on the theme of the return of Jesus Christ when there were those who were scoffing about the supposed delay in this return. And here in this final passage, we see something of each of those themes, but we want to look at four main points, and I've organized these points around the four imperatives, the four commands or exhortations we see Peter giving in these concluding words. The first one is, the Lord is returning, so pursue holiness. That's in verse 14. And then we see in verse 15, have a right view of the delay of the great day of Christ. And then further on down, we see in verse 17, beware of dangers along the way. And finally, in verse 18, grow in knowing Jesus Christ. So we want to look at these four final exhortations of Peter and what he says about each one of these. The first one is this, the Lord is returning, so pursue holiness of life. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
this exhortation is really a summary of a longer exhortation in the verses before it, in verses 11 to 13, in slightly different words. If you look back at verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that's the universe is to be dissolved and remade, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And he goes on to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. And here he reiterates that as the beginning of his final paragraph, we would say to them. And the major point is this, active expectation of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ in glory and power, that active expectation in our hearts and lives is a powerful motivation to practical holiness. Waiting for the coming of the Lord with expectation spurs us all on to live for Jesus Christ today. Scripture says that again and again and again. Many passages point to this. You could turn the page over to 1 John, maybe a verse that is dear to many of you, 1 John chapter 3 at verses 2 and 3. Here we see the same kind of thing in the language of the Apostle John. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the return of Christ. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if you have this hope and expectation that one day you will see Jesus Christ, we will see him after we die and we will see him when he returns. And that hope purifies us, the Apostle John says. This motivating effect is true for all of us, every believer of every age, uh, whether or not the Lord's return is tomorrow or a thousand years from now, because this waiting, since you are waiting for these things, this waiting means waiting in faith. In the Lord's Word, waiting in expectation, holding to the Word of God and the promises of God about the sure and certain return of Jesus Christ at the end of time. And so this glorious expectation transforms the way we look at life. And we might say, what are we waiting for? Well, it says, since you are waiting for these, clearly we've seen that he's pointing back to all that he said in the verses before this. The, the, the purifying or the dissolution of this created order. And there's debate about whether this is a purifying and some of it remains and it's all purified or whether it's all remade. We don't know how God will do this, but really it's the remaking of the created order and the removal of all evil and brokenness and sin, all that does not accord with the righteousness of God. And so, so we saw at the end of verse 13, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 19 at verse 28, Jesus, speaking to the disciples, talks about it in terms of the regeneration. That's a word that we usually use for being 
born again. There, Jesus uses it for the whole creation. He calls it the regeneration. ESV translates it this way. Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world. That's another way to translate it. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, and He goes on to talk about His disciples reigning with Him. So there's this regeneration And we think of chapters like Revelation 21, when the Apostle John describes the new heavens and the new earth and the the Jerusalem coming down from above and everything being changed and transformed and this great expectation. Peter is saying that fundamental teaching of the Bible about Jesus' return moves us to holiness. And the language Peter uses here in verse 14 is interesting. Notice he says, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's interesting language. It's judicial language. It's the language of the courtroom. Paul in Philippians rejoices that he has been, he's found in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. But We might use it in the courtroom and so say, so-and-so was found to be not guilty. That's the idea here. And uh, how are we to be found by him? We might be somewhat surprised that Peter says, without spot or blemish and at peace. Uh, We think about, usually we think about the imputed righteousness of Christ. And like Paul says in Philippians, that I, I would be found in Christ and through our union with him, be justified. And certainly that undergirds what Peter says here as well. But he says it in different language. He says, without spot or blemish and at peace. And we might think, well, why does he state it that way? Well, let's approach this by saying what Peter clearly does not mean. Peter does not mean that we are without spot or without blemish because we have somehow merited that status before God. It's not like our works are completely pure and that we don't have any remaining sin in our lives. We know that the Bible tells us that in this life, we we still struggle with remaining sin. We rejoice that we are justified freely through the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And it also doesn't mean that somehow we achieve moral perfection by our efforts in this life, which has historically become been called the doctrine of perfectionism that's been taught at various times by various groups in the history of the church, that somehow it's possible for a a, a Christian in this life to be spotless and without blemish. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean something. It does mean that Scripture teaches that there must be evidence of faith in Christ in our lives. And it's interesting, this phrase, this idea of being spotless and without blame is found in Scripture many times. In Ephesians 1.4, it says, Even as Christ chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. There's that same phrase. Or Ephesians 5.27, So that he might, he, Christ might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she might be holy and without blemish. And then, interestingly, in Philippians 2, verse 15, it clearly talks about this idea 
of being blameless and innocent in this present life. Of course, not perfectly we understand where Paul says, speaking to the Philippians and saying that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So there's a degree to which in this life, Christians begin in a preliminary way to be without blemish and without spot. It's not perfect, but there is evidence. And that's why Paul can write to these Philippians and say, be without blemish in this corrupt world in which you live. James would say it this way, faith without works is dead. And when Christ returns, that evidence will somehow be assessed by God. And that's what I think Peter has in mind here, that we would be diligent in this life in pursuing Jesus Christ and pursuing pleasing God and holiness of life, that there would be evidence that it would be shown that we are found to be in Christ on that day without spot or blemish when he perfects us and glorifies us. And when Jesus returns that evidence in each one of our lives as weak and as failing and as humble as that evidence may be, I think John Piper has said, I've heard sermons by him that he hopes he gets a D plus in his evidence. Uh, that's the kind of thing that there, that as weak as that faith might be, and our works do not merit salvation, but those evidences demonstrate that our faith in Christ is genuine. That's the idea here. As always, we are saved only by the work of Jesus Christ. But the idea here is that the expectation of Christ's return moves us to live for Jesus Christ now so that when we stand before him, we can hear the phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You see then this motivating, powerful hope of Jesus' return that ought to make us pursue a life that's pleasing to God. Note how similar this is to how Peter began his epistle in chapter 1 when he, when he talked about knowing Christ and the promises of God and growing in all these virtues and Christ-likeness, and he gets down to verse 10, and he says, Therefore, brothers, and here's the same thing, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Again, that doesn't mean that we somehow save ourselves. It's pursuing the Lord and holiness and walking with Him. And he goes on to say, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In a sense, it's like Peter has Peter's list of the fruit of the Spirit that came above these verses. And he says, if you do these qualities, if, if you show evidence in your life, then that is the way you confirm that you know Jesus, that you're called, that you're elect, that you're in union with him. And so he brings forth that theme again at the end here. So waiting in expectation for Christ's return motivates us to pursue holiness, to live for Christ, and to please God. I don't know what earthly things you're looking forward to. We saw a news story about 
um, videos of teenagers reading on their computer that they had been accepted to the college that they wanted to go to. And it was this montage of explosive joy from these seniors in high school. And some of their parents were there, and somehow they had videotaped this, and just child after child just bubbling over with excitement that the college of their choice, they were going to get to go there. So maybe it's it's college you're looking forward to, or maybe it's getting married if that's in store for you, or maybe it's the job you've always wanted, or maybe it's a, a family reunion that you're looking forward to. You know, don't we often live in expectation of special things in our lives? Well, how are we doing in terms of remembering the great glorious return of Jesus Christ. That's like the the north star in the Christian's life and experience that should be coming to our mind. Do you know something of this glorious hope? Maybe you've never entrusted your life to Christ. And so the thought of that great day of the Lord brings a sense of unease into your heart as you think, could it be true? Is all that the Bible says really true? And if you do not know Christ, I hope that you can see something of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as you understand what the gospel is, that Jesus came to live and to die in our place and to be raised gloriously and to offer salvation to whomsoever would come and believe in him, that he would cleanse you of your sins and he would give you a new life that new life that would inexorably begin to show up in how you live, that fruit, that evidence. But maybe the glory of that hope has burned low in your heart. You do know the Lord, but you don't think of it very much. Maybe you've got so many things going on in your life and you're distracted, all the cares and all the pleasures of this life, as Jesus says, or you are so tired and discouraged by the waiting and by the evil of this present world. And that brings us to our second exhortation in verse 15. And I've termed this point, have a right view of the delay of that great day. Have a right view of the delay of that great day. Let me explain what I mean. Verse 15 says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, and he goes on about Paul. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And you might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, we have to realize that Peter is in a sense using shorthand to speak about this whole matter of the apparent delay in Christ's return. The false teachers were using the fact that Jesus hadn't immediately come, even in this New Testament era. And so they were saying, well, it's not true. He's not going to return. There is no judgment, you know, and and, and on and on. We've looked some at that already in chapters 2 and 3. But I say it's the apparent delay of Christ because from God's perspective, From a biblical perspective, there is no delay at all to the purpose of God infallibly unfolding according to God's perfect plan. But in chapter 3, the first part of it, Peter has addressed this scoffing claim that the false teachers were leading astray the flock with. And notice especially 
in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where, where Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And then he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And there are different interpretations of that verse. It's a difficult verse, but clearly this reference to patience then in verse 15 looks back to the Lord's patience. And whatever interpretation you take, um, clearly Peter is saying that the delay from our perspective points to the patience of God for sinners to repent in the meantime. God is patient, giving opportunity to repent. And so now, the point is, from our perspective, any delay should be seen as a demonstration of the patience of God. And so Peter uses this accounting term, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's telling us to reckon and count from a biblical biblical point of view to line up our perspective with God's, to realize that God's purposes are unfolding, and maybe they're unfolding much more slowly than we would like. Isn't that how it tends to be with all of us? And Peter is saying, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Think of it this way, isn't it easy to grow tired and discouraged living in this present world? Yes, we know and have come to know God's love in Jesus Christ. Uh, Yes, we know that all day will one day be made right in glory and in the judgment and in the renovation of all things. But in the meantime, isn't there so much sadness in this world? Isn't there so much evil? So many heart-wrenching things that we see and sometimes experience in our own lives. And we need to be reminded that God's patience has to do with salvation, both in the sense of the salvation of God going to the ends of the earth when that has fully been done, when the gospel has been preached in all the world, then the end will come. Jesus says the patience of God for the gospel going out in that sense, but also for the salvation of God to be accomplished in each of His people's lives to the purpose of His working in each one of us. And in that sense, there's this future aspect of salvation that Christians need to bear in mind. You know, the Bible, typically we talk in terms of, I have been saved. That's a biblical idea. We've been justified. We've been saved by grace through faith. But the Bible also talks about, I am being saved by Christ now and His work in me, and a future sense, I will one day be completely saved. There will be a a future glorification and absolute completion of the salvation that God has begun. In fact, it's interesting that here, that Peter would talk about that here, when in 1 Peter chapter 1, he begins with some of those same themes. He says, who by God's power, chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, and here's the phrase, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That future-oriented type of salvation, the consummation of our salvation at the last time. And then in verses 8 and 9 of First Peter 1, he says, though you have not seen Christ, 
You love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And here's the phrase again, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, looking ahead to what God will finally do. I think of the American Revolution with what the soldiers and the young nation went through during those very difficult eight years, through those many years of conflict and and desperate times, through the freezing winters like Valley Forge and through the deprivations they experienced. And uh, you see writings about that as the army marched, the, the snow was tinged with their blood, you know, from their feet, which were often bare. And, and um, what is it that sustained them? And wasn't it the expectation of victory and freedom? Isn't that the thing that the world is, is marveling at, really, in the present conflict in the Ukraine, uh, the motivation and the spirit of the Ukrainian people really has become a wonder of the world in many ways. And, and so this idea, this sense here, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, it points to this idea of living in hope that even though there is delay, even though there may be long years of, of looking forward to the purposes of God globally or individually being fulfilled in our lives with His salvation being completed, even though that's the case, we can live in light that Jesus Christ will fully accomplish it. And that changes everything about the way we live. The Apostle Paul gives his own interpretation of this in his own words. It's similar to what Peter is saying, but it's Paul's words in Romans 8, where in verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's the salvation that's going to come. And then he goes on, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When is the revealing of the sons of God? When Jesus returns. Then he talks about creation and so forth. But then he he finally says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And that's what life in this present world is life. We can be groaning inwardly about what's happening in our lives, about what's happening in the world, world, but we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And then Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Third, we find that We must beware of dangers along the way. And here we see this in verses 16 and 17. As we seek to live for Christ, as we seek to walk with Jesus Christ, there are dangers along the way. And Peter has talked about these extensively in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But he refers to this again, and it's interesting what he says here. We could spend a whole sermon or two about what this says about the Bible and the doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration, but start. let's back up to verse 15, the middle of verse 15. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, 
as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And then the command comes, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, and here's the phrase, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is a complex sentence or two here, isn't it? And we're not going to go into in depth about what he says about Paul, but clearly Peter is mentioning Paul to confirm all that he has written in this letter. And he's saying basically, I want you to know though that Paul agrees with me on this. And we might say, well, why does he bring in Paul? Well, most likely it's because what we read here is that some of the things that Paul wrote in his letters were being twisted by these false teachers. We might guess that it's matters about the law that Paul wrote about, our freedom in Christ, and phrases like, we are freed from the law that we find in various epistles of Paul. We're not absolutely sure what exactly Peter has in mind, but still, the point is that just like I read in Romans chapter 8, Paul agrees with Peter about the return of Jesus Christ, about the need to live a holy life. He has lots of verses about that as too. But these false teachers, in their error, promoted a lawless, licentious lifestyle. In other words, because there wasn't any judgment day, because Jesus Christ wasn't going to come again, well, then you could live the way you wanted to live. There's evidence that that was apparently the type of thing that they were saying. And so Peter marshals Paul as well as standing with him against these falsehoods. And it's interesting that as he does that, he makes this tremendous declaration there that he says in verse 16 that um, there are some things which they twist and so forth at the end of that verse, as they do the other scriptures. And that word scriptures is the same word that the New Testament uses again and again and again to speak about the Old Testament scriptures. And that phrase, by using that phrase, Peter puts the letters of Paul in the same category as the Old Testament scriptures. Strong evidence for the inspiration and the inerrancy of the New Testament as well as the Old And so, here is this exhortation about this constant danger in each of our lives. The danger of the subtle twisting of Scripture, ultimately, which results in justifying immorality, not living for the Lord, and all kinds of errors about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about the church, Uh, so many ways that Scripture is twisted. In fact, probably just about every way that people would twist Scripture nowadays has already been tried in church history at one point or another and has been condemned. It's like the very first temptation when the serpent in his subtlety said to Eve, did God actually say? 
you know, bringing into doubt the character of God and the truthfulness of God. Young people, let me speak to you. I can assure you that in one way or, or another, has, if this already hasn't happened to you, you will be tempted by that essential idea, that lie from Satan, does God really say that? Is the Bible really true? I've been taught this all my life, but now at this point in my life, I'm hearing alternative options. And essentially, I'm being told, you don't really believe that, do you? The Bible, you know, you can't believe that. It's so subtle and sometimes not so. But notice how Peter is warning all of us in advance. He says that he's uh, in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. In other words, don't be surprised at the spiritual warfare you're going to be involved in. Uh, He's saying be prepared for very plausible ways of thinking that will just carry you away into error, into lawlessness. And remember, we're told that Satan himself presents himself as an angel of light. He's not going to come across like with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. He's going to come across in a beautiful way. And so there are all kinds of errors and heresies that would lead us astray. Don't be deceived. And the only way not to be deceived is to stay in the Word of God, to walk closely to Jesus Christ, and to maintain your fellowship with Him. I was reading about the mission work in the 1800s in New Zealand this week. It's interesting in, by the time that the missionaries got to about 1850s, there, was trem- there had been tremendous church growth among the natives, among the native tribes it, by that time. And, and in fact, in, in fact by, by 1851, the general secretary of the Methodist mission and the Methodists and the Anglicans had worked together for decades in church planting and translation and evangelism. But by 1951, listen to this quote about how Christianity had taken hold in New Zealand with the native tribes. Scriptural Christianity has taken deep root in the native mind and is generally received throughout the length and breadth of the land. Very few remain in heathenism. Almost all the aboriginal families throughout New Zealand read the scriptures and pray together morning and evening. I read that quote and I just thought, wow. The gospel had taken such deep root that these families who had come to Christ were reading the Bible as families and praying together morning and evening. That would be a tough standard to hold up our members to and say, hey, how's everyone doing compared to them? But that's not the end of the story. The sad part of the story is the second generation. And there's a lot of complexity to it. There's always the land-grabbing Europeans who were pushing the Aborigines further and further out of the land. And the second generation became resentful of that, of, of course. But what comes out as it's further described is that many joined cultic movements that revived native traditions and that look to a glorious future free from European colonialists. Now, you might say, well, I don't blame them for pushing back against colonialism, which was so evil and wrong, but the interesting thing is that 
They merge Christianity with cultish-type traditions, and so many were led astray by that. That's just one example. There, you know, there are thousands and thousands of examples throughout the history of the church. We need to beware of being led astray into error. And that brings us to our final point. Grow in knowing Jesus Christ. Really, this is the overarching theme above this final conclusion. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And that's an unusual concluding phrase, to the day of eternity, probably looks to the new heavens and the new earth that Peter has just written about. What Peter is saying there is nothing more powerful and effective in keeping us from being deceived by error than by positively growing in Jesus Christ. Commentators often say that if there is a key verse in 2 Peter, then it would be this one. And it's interesting that it's very similar to how Peter starts his epistle in in chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in verse 8 of chapter 1, the same thing. For if, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in this short epistle, we find this phrase and this idea. It's really a key verse. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's to be our goal every day. It's very freeing to think of that, that think of all that you have to do in life. Think of all the, you know, the 21st century administrative tasks that all of us have. You know, April 15th is coming up. Did you file your taxes, your state taxes, your local taxes, you know, all these, you know, paperwork. Don't you get tired of the paperwork you have to do just to live? Well, in the midst of all of that, to think that the supreme goal of our lives is to know the love of Christ and to grow in knowing Him and loving Him. What a great privilege we have to be known and loved by Christ and to be growing in the knowledge. And that means that we grow in knowing about Him, studying the Bible to understand the Bible's doctrines and who Jesus Christ is, knowledge about God and about Christ and about all of that we need to know. But also it means to be growing in our communion, our fellowship with Jesus Christ, our communion with Christ that flows out of our union with Christ by grace through faith. How do we do that? I read Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon this week on Second Peter, these verses, and it was the first, if you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the foremost British preachers of the 20th century. And his Second Peter sermons, turns out they're the first expository preaching he did at Westminster Chapel in London after the end of World War II. He, he became famous for other series like the Sermon on the Mount and Romans and all these other things. But Second Peter was his first attempt. And he got into this text, Growing in Christ, and there are three sermons on that. There's a lot there. And he goes through a whole list of about 10 or 12 ways to be growing in Christ. But as I, as I jotted notes down on that list and categorized them in my mind, this is what I came up with, five, five ways. I, w- I won't go in depth. The private means of grace. 
The Word of God and prayer, meditation, self-examination, those things that we're called to do and that we know that's really how we speak to Jesus our Lord and how, how we hear from Him through His Word. Then there's the corporate means of grace, worship, hearing the Word of God preached, participating in the Lord's Supper, fellowship. Are we giving ourselves to these? And then there's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called Christian exercise, positive Christian living, seeking to do the will of God. And the scripture that I would put above that is Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, seeking to do the will of God every day, seeking to be obedient to Christ as we trust in Him. And then there's the area of spiritual warfare. Fourthly, that we might be fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, and avoiding everything that's harmful to the growth of knowing Christ and the life of God in our souls. And then I'll just, the fifth I thought was really interesting, Lloyd-Jones says, everyone needs rest. And he says, standing in our justification, the rest of faith, leaning on Jesus Christ. And so we grow in knowing him. Well, these are the kind of means that we pursue, but the great goal is the goal we keep in mind to be growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. May each one of us seek to grow daily in Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we thank You for this book that has shed light into our hearts and minds. We thank You that nothing has changed As much as the world does change, nothing has changed in terms of the spiritual warfare we're engaged in and the calling by God that you've given us to grow in walking with you. Lord, help us each this week as we seek to do that, as we seek to take these things to heart. And may all glory be to you through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.